Welcome to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. I'm Aisha Subramanian. And I'm Dan Hartland. In every episode of Critical Friends, we'll be discussing SFF reviewing, what it is, why we do it, how it's going. In this episode, we air an edited version of an interview with the reviewer, critic and former Strange Horizons editor, Neil Harrison, which Dan conducted at Conversation, the 2023 UK Eastercon, where Neil was guest of honour. Through a series of books from various parts of his life, Neil talks about how he began reading SF, why he started reviewing it, and where criticism might or should go in the future. Neil chose a number of books. In this edited version of the interview, we discuss in turn a Dragonlance novel, The Test of the Twins by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, Pacific Edge by Kim Stanley Robinson, The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, Half by Jan Morris, The Wind-Up Girl by Perla Becigalupi, and A Story Regenerated Bricks by Han Sung, which appeared in Mingwei Sung and Theodore Hooter's The Reincarnated Giant. And so, without further ado, Neil Harrison's Life in Books. So, at some point, Neil Harrison, doyen, critic, reviewer, reader, uh, very patient friend of mine, you weren't a science fiction reader as difficult as we may find that to believe. When did that happen? And why? I mean, yes. The first things I remember reading in terms of series are things like Swallows and Amazons, World Prices, Animal Adventure books, those, those sorts of series. Um, it wasn't until probably 9, 10, 11 that I feel, that I remember getting into science fiction or fantasy series, and there were a couple of routes into that. Um, one was my dad would occasionally read to my brother and I, and he read, uh, an R- the one I remember is an R.A. Lafferty story called The Seven Day Wonder, hmm. um, which is about a kid who just ha- uh, creates a tube and looks through it and makes things disappear and baffles all of the adults. Uh-huh. Um, and on his bookshelves he had, I remember seeing Dune and occasional Highlines and Foundation, which I read my way through several times. Um, and then the first thing I remember kind of getting into that I then pursued was a series called Dragonlance. My parents bought me a couple of omnibus anthologies, I think, for birthday or Christmas one year. And do you and know got, why? Like, why? I don't remember why, no. It's fascinating, yes. isn't it? These things. I, hadn't, I don't think I'd made it all the way through The Lord of the Rings, so they might have been trying to find <laughs> something else that I would uh, maybe, th- maybe he could do with this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, this was one of, you know, it was a spin-off of kind of Forgotten Realms D&D thing, and it's one of these series where... There were initial trilogies which were based on, I think, an actual role-playing campaign, and then lots and lots of other books. And at the time, and certainly in my teens, we would go to the US on holiday fairly often, and I sort of had memories of going into bookshops in US malls and coming back with armfuls of Dragonlance books that I would then spend the rest of the holiday reading. So they had that glamour because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dragonlance Legends, which is the second trilogy, and it deals with a pair of twins, you know, very stereotypical. There's a, a handsome kind of noble warrior brother and a weaker, frailer, but ambitious and powerful wizard brother. And when the wizard brother studies to pass his exams, the examiners are so terrified of him, they curse him. And they give him sight 
which looks at things and sees them decaying. So he looks at an apple and sees it rotting away. He looks at a person and sees them aging. And the symbol of this is that his, hour, his pupils are turned into hourglasses. And the second trilogy is all about, essentially, his lust for power, his quest for power, and eventually going on to, because this is a fantasy trilogy, going on to challenge the gods themselves. Yeah, it's that so, moment of sort of dizzying conceptual shift that science yeah. fiction fantasy can deliver, and which you had previously not encountered. So at 10, that must have struck you pretty hard. Yeah. So where did that lead you to? If you were like, <laughs> at this book, where did you go from there? How did you try and get that fix from elsewhere? 50 more Dragonlance books. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of US trips. Yeah, I mean, they were over here as well. But, um, <laughs> and, but the, none of them quite hit the same highs, obviously, because they never do. Um, but the other thing was, when we were on those trips, we'd start to pick up other things. So I'd pick up occasional issues of Asimov's or Analog. Um, and it's interesting that that was the route through which I think I ended up then going into the local library and picking up more stuff. Um, so that's when I started discovering, you know, Stephen Baxter, Peter F. Hamilton. And at this point, it, becomes, it starts to be embedded in your daily life, your regular reading, because yeah. it's not just happening over there in the glamorous US. No. At, th at this point, I'm in my mid-teens, and I'm subscribed to SFX, and I'm kind of starting to follow along. I don't know anyone else who's really reading science fiction at school. I don't have any friends who are Games Workshop a little bit, um, but not reading the same writers I am. Uh, so it's a purely solitary pursuit at this stage? Fairly, fairly solitary, yeah. And do you... So how do you experience the books in that case? Because, of course, th right now we're here because you're a guest of honour at an EasterCon where people talk about these books constantly amongst each other. But you, you're not talking about these books to anyone. <laughs> right, at this point. It's all pent up and came flooding yeah. out years later. Uh, yeah, no, pretty much. I mean, I probably I must have talked to my family about them to some degree, but I don't remember having like passionate conversations over dinner about what I was really <laughs> thinking about that. Well, I'm sure so. your parents were relieved. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and at the time when I was 15, the school library had a shelf, and the town library as well had a shelf of Kim Stanley Robinson. I kind of worked my way through, and Pacific Edge, which is the third of three alternate future Californias that he wrote, and is the kind of positive utopian one. Is the book of Kim Stanley Robinson that I have returned to more than any other. Uh, although the Mars ones were the ones that really shaped kind of me at that time. I just wondered whether we could linger just briefly on that separation between the Mars books and this book that you say you've returned to more than the Mars books. And could we drill down just a little bit as to why that might be? What, what is it about this book that has become stickier for you? Do you, do you know? There's a, there's a clarity to it. There's a simplicity to it, I guess. The Mars books are doing many Lots of things. A huge story over centuries with a cast of dozens. This is you know, a handful of people in a small town in California. Um, I think the California aspect itself, I mean, obviously there's a lot of California in everything Kim Stanley Robinson writes, but given that it's somewhere that I've traveled to quite a lot, both growing up and subsequently on holidays and for work, it's a, it's a place in the world that kind of means it's quite a romantic place for me in some ways. Um, and so it, it embodies that and lets me uh, live in that place a little bit. That brings us back to the biographical, this idea that the, the books that we critics and reviewers try and pick apart really are having an emotional impact on us, which we sometimes try and obscure in our work, you know, and come up with all these very smart-sounding phrases like overshoot to describe... <laughs> to coin a word. Yeah, to, to describe books. But really, they're hopefully hitting us somewhere where we feel it. But to return to this idea that 
you're feeling these books, but you're feeling them alone because when you're at school, no one else is reading them. Were you aware of a wider community that you didn't have access yeah, to? Yeah, because by this point, again, I you know, found Asma was an analogue. Gardner does one of his best and his enormous summaries of what was going on, and through that I got some issues of Interstone, although I never actually really subscribed to Interstone probably until the late 90s. And so that wasn't the main routine <laughs> for me. SFX was part of the routine. Yeah. Um, didn't have the internet at home, so I didn't get the internet until I went to university in 1998. Uh, went up to... Oxford University, and went to the Freshers' Fair, and went into the Freshers' Fair with a single mission, which was to find the science fiction group. <laughs> there was not a science fiction group. There was a speculative fiction group. And the table was staffed by two women, Joe and Ruth, who I think is over there. Uh, and they were signing up every fresher they could possibly <laughs> entice. Deliberate strategy <laughs> on the part of the group, and quite an effective one. Uh, and... Part of the enticement was that people who joined could pick a book to add to the society library. I had not actually read The Sparrow at the time, which I don't think I had. The reason I picked it is that I knew it had won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. And I'd been aware of the Arthur C. Clarke Award because my uncle had bought me a copy of The Star Fraction the previous year, and it came with a little logo on it. I think it said runner-up for the Clarke Award, which is not something that is routinely done. Um, but so I thought The Sparrow, Clarke Award, want to read that, that'd be a good you know, impressive-sounding edition. And then I did read it, and it absolutely bowled me over. It's not, interestingly, one that I have gone back to again and again. I don't know how well all of it holds up, but that first, that prologue is etched in my mind. And that last line of, they do no harm, it just lands yeah. with the force of... Well, I mean, the, the, that line, they do no harm, is absolutely central to the, yeah. uh, to the whole, whole book. I wanted to linger just briefly, because yet again, you've chosen a book that had an emotional impact on you, rather than... Uh, one idea. that is big and clever, although some of them are that too. The other one that would have been for this period was uh, Ted Chung's Stories of Your Life and Others, which is an extraordinary collection that I love dearly, but is very different in tone. So it kind of plays into what you're saying. But at this point, whichever book you chose, you're reading it within a community. Yeah, the speculative fiction group met twice a week. Uh, there were kind of discussion meetings and other things on Wednesdays and then just hanging out. Does this have an impact on, on your reading? Absolutely. In what way? Uh, reading authors that I had not ever read before, that people were directly recommending to me, me starting to recommend things to other people, uh, going off to the first conventions that I went to, so PicaCon, the Imperial College SF event, that's a one-day event every February, but small, small cons. So feeling part of a community, feeling part of a discourse, a conversation, to you know, coin a phrase, and, yeah, just enjoying it at that point. So at this stage, you're starting not just to receive yeah. recommendations, like finding a sticker in a book and looking for something else. You're starting to develop your own tastes and wishing to inflict them upon others. <laughs> and you've been doing this it ever since. This is not an infliction. <laughs> yes. By that point, I graduated, um, but not lost touch with a group of friends. And we'd started the habit of every so often, once a year or every couple of years, there'd be about a dozen of us, now, maybe up to 16, 17, going off to a big house somewhere with a big pile of books, and we would just sit around and read, play occasional board games, cook big meals. Some adventurous souls would go for an occasional walk, but mostly the reading. Uh, and a habit developed that there would quite often be something that someone reads 
early on in the week and then says everyone else has to read this and it goes around the room. But we get towards the community thing again, which is that you're not just responding to it. <clears throat> There's a second thing going on here which not everyone does, which is proselytize as well. So you're handing it round to all these poor people that are stuck <laughs> in this barn somewhere with you and have nowhere else to somewhere go. Somewhere in the Lake District, I think that yeah. one was. Tell me about that, not necessarily just about this specific book or that specific experience, because at this point you are starting to review. That's how I first met you. You were online. We were yeah. reviewing media. That's, that's the other strand that we haven't talked about, right? So also at university, the other community I got involved in was online uh, on Usenet, UK Media, TV Angel, and to a lesser extent the, the Buffy the Vampire Star group, but the Angel group very much so. Yes. Uh, you and I and a, a few other people over there. Um, and we would... You know, there were, what, half a dozen of us that would every week write a little piece about whatever episode it aired, and then we would go into detailed dissection. That's probably where I practiced kind of my reviewing chops, if you like. And that, uh, that community aspect of it was central. The fact that we were doing it as a group and that we were, you know, reacting to each other's takes was what made it yeah. Yeah, compelling. But there were more people than the half a dozen that did the reviews in yeah. the group there were many more people who commented on the reviews. So we still haven't got to the heart of why you were doing one of the reviews. So <clears throat> why are you handing these books around? Why are you writing about Angel episodes? By the way, uh, I, you know, I have you ever been? Season two of Angel is art. Um, <laughs> why are you doing this? What, 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 is there a compulsion in you? Do you even know why you're doing it at that time? I don't know at that time. Yeah. I don't know now to some extent. It's just something I do. It's something I, I watch something, I read something. To some extent, I listen to things, and I want to talk about them, to, to share them, and that's the mechanism through which I do that. You've gone from not knowing anyone to being at Oxford University and knowing a relatively small group of people that for some reason call themselves a speculative fiction group, <laughs> then towards having a wider circle of friends that you've met through the internet, and now with this book that we're about to hear a reading from, unless I see a scared wave from the back of the room, awesome, you are in an even bigger community, indeed the biggest in your field in the year of the 2005 Worldcon. How does that feel? <laughs> Terrifying, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously. So I'd got in touch, uh, or made kind of contact with the BSFA, as it were. Um, some of us had started going to the Lon monthly London meetings, and I'd written a couple of reviews for Vexa and for Alex McClintock's site, Diverse Books. I did a few. Hmm. Um, nothing longer than sort of six or seven hundred words at this point. Uh, and as the world kind of approached, I found myself getting sucked into the more of involvement with it. I think Farah Mendelssohn recruited Jean Mel Zakanai to help with some aspects of the program, and suddenly there I was deciding which of these authors that I had read stuff by but never met might be on a panel <laughs> together, like playing with action figures and getting to, you know, make them talk to each other. Is anyone else disturbed by that? <laughs> and this was a time when you were moving from your communities yeah. to a 
as we said, a bigger community. But not only that, you were very rapidly getting a pretty prominent voice in that community. Yeah, because, I mean, Gene Malzak and I took over the features editor role in Vector in 2005, and we set up Talk Control, which was the first time there had been a BSFA blog, I believe, which became the kind of platform for a lot of the next five years for me. At the same time, pretty much, I volunteered as reviews editor for Strange Horizons, which it's weird to think how Strange Horizons seemed like it had been around as an institution <laughs> already at that point. It did five years, right? It started in 2000, and now it's 23 years and counting. I mean, and so I had a platform not just for me to write things, but for me to tell other people to write things, and that was exciting. It's just getting worse and worse with it you, is. isn't the, it? The, Egomania is uncontrollable. And you're also, one of the other things that you're doing at this absurd time is you're judging the Clark Award. A couple of years later, yeah. Yeah, and that brings us to Have by Jan Morris. I remember I was one of the people being inflicted <laughs> a book uh, upon by Neil at this time, and I remember him giving me this book, and I'm afraid to say that I really enjoyed it, and I was a bit disappointed not to be able to argue with him about it. So this... so. This came in as a Clark Award submission, I think, in the first year that I was a judge. And I had no idea who Jan Morris is. For anyone else who doesn't know, she is, was an extremely well-regarded travel writer, historian, journalist. Just extraordinary life if you go and look her up on Wikipedia. Um, and so it came in the pile of Clark books. And when you're a Clark judge, you have you know some 80, 100 books, however many to get through. And I just picked up and started reading. It has no conventional plot to speak of. It is a travel book about a fictional place that Jan Morris has inserted into the history of somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean um, and done so with such thoroughness. The story goes that you know, when the first part of it was serialized in the London Review of Books in the 80s, that some people wrote letters asking how mm. they could get to her mm. because they were assuming it was travel writing because it was Jan Morris. Um, and you know, I was entranced by it. Justifying it as science fiction was made ah. a lot easier by Ursula Le Guin reviewing it in The Guardian and insisting that it was science fiction. <laughs> uh, science fiction is what, we point, what Ursula Le Guin points to, and we just trust her judgment on it. It's one that inspired me to go and read a lot more of Jan Morris's work. Mm. You know, she had an enormous bibliography. I've probably read a book a year pretty much by her since coming across this one. So it's a book that unlocked a whole area of literature. It's really me. interesting because, again, these books are... They're personal artifacts. So it's very yes. easy for reviewers and critics to be accused of, often rightly, of uh, being cool and rather sniffy about things. But ultimately, the reason that I write views, and I, I think you're the same, Neil, is because these books have an effect, and we want to understand why. And the effect they have is primarily personal. But... I mean, that, that is, if you ask me today, that is the thing I would say if I... I'm trying to write a review, the thing I want to convey is the effect the book had on me. If, I, if people can get an emotional sense from the review, that's what I mean. Yeah, they have impacts on our lives. Yes. But, okay. Have is an interesting case because you were desperately, not desperately, but seeking um, a community. So you start reading these books and you slowly build up and you, 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 you're completely isolated. Then you've got a little community, then you've got a slightly bigger community, then you've got a massive community, then you're king of fandom. And... <laughs> Immediately, immediately you are admitted 
to the inner sanctum, more or less, you start picking books like Have <laughs> and telling, telling the genre, no, 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 this, this is what you need. Were you conscious of that? Were you deliberately trying to cause I trouble? Not, no, I was not yeah. deliberately trying to cause that. No, I was not deliberately trying to cause trouble. I was conscious that it was not... I'm trying to think what else was in that year that people were upset was left off. But, it, I mean, I guess I was treating the clerk like an extension. I mean, I wasn't, obviously, I wasn't the only person on the jury arguing for it to be included, right? It's a group discussion. Of course. So I wasn't the only person that it had impact on. Um, but it's not core genre, is it? No. Were you, were you conscious of not wanting to read, of moving away from, of pushing the boundaries of, quote-unquote, core genre? Because this is a book. This is a book. <laughs> it's literature. Uh-huh. Yeah. It wasn't deliberate. I was conscious by that point that... I think this is something that, this, that happens to critics, right? When you read a lot and write about it and do that routinely... Um, I've certainly heard film critics talk about this. I've heard music critics talk about this. You start to look for the things that are a bit different than the things you have seen before, and this stood out in that way. And I don't think, I don't think we should be afraid of exploring that. It's, it's interesting how things have changed over the last 15 or 16 years, right? Because the debate then was about, are we claiming that for our territory? I think if it came out now, we wouldn't eat, that wouldn't really be part of the conversation. I think both sides are much more open to books moving across these... Yeah, sure, but that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because of people like you. Okay. All so right. if I'm you don't make the argument 10 years ago, then 10 years later, someone's still going to say, that's not SF. So you need to be... Take it up with us, you into sort of where are we now 2009 with wind up girl yeah this is a point where if we're talking about genre fandom the community the discourse and where it finds itself how it shapes itself how it understands itself yeah we're in a tricky place and this book is part of that tricky place it was a very when you think about these two things happening at the same time it's a very interesting juxtaposition right so the first thing is that the wind up girl comes out it wins pretty much every award going um and it's a book that the field had been waiting for because his stories had got a lot of attention in the few years before that. It's a book that is doing things that the field had been increasingly focusing on, like it's set in Thailand, it's um, very near future, it's uh, globalised, ecological SF. And at the same time, 2009 is the year of race fail, right? It's the year when all fandom descends into... Well, I don't want to trivialise it, but it's, it was a traumatic and challenging year for a lot of people. And I wrote a review of it, of this book, For Strange Horizons. Mm. And the review came out in November. The book came out in, I think, April or May. I must have written three or four versions of that review um, because I was trying to work out how to resolve exactly this tension of this book got under my skin and did things to me. And Probably up until that point, I guess my critical thinking had been as long as I am 
uh, honest and accurate in relaying that experience, then that's how you write a review. And suddenly, part of the discourse was, well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe you're not actually the right person to review this book, to talk about this book. Mm. Or maybe, I'll, come, I'll say the next bit in a minute, but that, so there, there was a great anxiety that went into that review. Um, and the review is in my new book, which is in the dealer's room. Uh, so I'm not unhappy with it. And I think it says some things that I'm glad to have been able to... One of the things that reviewing does is it lets you um, articulate things, work things out, and get them down so that you understand what you think. Um, and I'm glad it helped me do that. But it was definitely a pivot in how I approached reviewing and thinking about reviewing. Yeah, T towards a more self-aware approach? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was entirely unself-aware before that. Mm -hmm. um, I had been schooled at various times in various aspects of feminist SF, for instance. Uh, but this was certainly another level in that. So... We went from one girl where you, you're sort of starting to think, who writes? Who should write? Then, uh, you know, in 2015, and I know for various reasons, uh, you're very busy work. Yeah, so I, I stayed with Strange Horizons up until 20, early 2017, I think it was. Um, by that point, I was editor-in-chief of Strange Horizons. So then, then I stepped down and... Pretty much at the same time, I've, I've more or less stopped reviewing for about five years. I, there's kind of two intertwined things. Like one is I'd taken on a new role in my day job, mm -hmm. which was a managerial role, which kind of ate up a lot of the same brain space for some reason. I just found myself without the time or energy. The other was, I think, not run out of things to say necessarily, but run out of how to say them for a while. How do you mean? Like, uh, how to say them? I mean, interpretive dance, or <laughs> what do you mean? What do I mean? I mean, I don't know, getting a little stale, mm. perhaps. Um, and also, by that point, so when I became editor in chief of Strange Horizon, I asked Abigail Nussbaum to come the reviews editor. She passed on to you and Aisha and, and Maureen Kincaid's Bella in 2014, 2015? 15. 15. Yeah. Um, and you, all of you, did a much better job than I did, you know, following on from of broadening the pool of reviewers and bringing in a much wider range of perspectives into that space. Mm. And for a while, I think I felt that was just the necessary thing. And now I sort of feel, I guess I feel able to return in a way because that's happened. <laughs> and I'm, You're welcome. And I'm <laughs> in a slightly smaller part of a bigger pond. But the, the first substantial piece that I'd written for about five years was an essay on Chinese SF that appeared in Vector. And I kind of read a whole bunch of short stories and then uh, organized them in a, into a chronology. And Han Song was the writer I kind of most enjoyed discovering as a part of that process. But why, I mean, I, I, mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm glad you're writing again. But why was it the reincarnated giant or the Chinese F SF essay? What, what was it about that that was like the thing that made you come back? Because on one level, it's counterintuitive, right? One, one yeah. response to the situation you found yourself in was, okay, I'm only going to write about British SF. That's what I feel qualified to write about. It's astonishing to me that I put this list of books together, and I think the only British author on here is Jan Morris. Exactly. No Baxter. Where, I mean, how did I put this list together without including Stephen Baxter? I, I mean, I, yeah, how did that happen? So why the Chinese SF? What is it about that that has... That means you've returned to us at the turn of the time. 
I don't know. I just felt like there was a, a gap um, that there was all this work coming through from China and from other places um, that I wanted to understand better. Um, and I just remember, you know, I think it was Joe Lindsay Walton sent the email, who was vector editor at the time, oh, commissioning articles for a specialist on Chinese SF. And I thought, actually, yeah, I would like to get into that and look at that and find out what's going on in that part of the field. And the way the essay came out, so I, I had like six anthologies. I read all the stories in them. Rather than the reviewing, reviewing them anthology by anthology, I took all the stories, arranged them by their original publication date in Chinese, and worked my way through them in that order to try to get a feel for what was what was happening in China over these two decades that I've been writing all these reviews. Mm. And then the essay is structured in, in that way. So it's kind of a parallel chronology, which was just an interesting exercise in bridge building and, and finding where the links were. And is that the future for your work, do you think? Is that the method you're going to approach or the, the mission you're going to set yourself moving forward? I mean, it's, what, it's the main thing I'm doing at the moment, yeah. Um, the main project that I've started is a new column at Strange Horizons, yeah. as you know. Uh, which I'm calling Depth of Field, which is going to be quarterly, and there will be some new books, some old books, some genre books, some mainstream books, just putting them together in different configurations and trying to find links, continuities between them to try to make it feel more like one field. Because I think perhaps one of the things, you know, it's a very exciting and necessary thing that we have all this information about all hmm. the different traditions of um, SF in the world now, and I don't want to try to reify everything into a single sacred timeline, but I also don't want everything to fly apart into 19 different timelines that don't talk to each other. So I want to try and bridge between that a little bit. I think that is a, a laudable mission and something for us all to be uh, logging on to Strange Horizons every quarter to read about. Thanks for being Neil Harrison. Give him a round of applause. to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. Our theme music is Dial Up by Lost Cosmonauts. You can hear more of their music at grandvalise.bandcamp.com. See you next time. <laughs>